Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. conversation is about urban design, the critical role it plays in how we plan our cities and neighborhoods, and the ways in which it can make a significant difference to our general sense of well-being in our built environment. To learn more about this topic, I'm joined by Antonio Gomez-Palacio, Principal Urban Planner with Dialogue, a multidisciplinary design, architecture, and engineering firm with offices in Canada and the U.S., including one here in Toronto. Antonio, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much. And it's great to be here in this uh, beautiful office at Young and Bloor. And the first thing um, that I came across walking into the office were a bunch of these colorful wheels. Um, (laughs) These wheels, which I understand are called community well-being framework wheels. before we get into the discussion of urban design, I know you guys are really proud about this this wheel. Um, maybe you can start by talking about what this is all about. Uh, absolutely, and and thanks for for the invitation of being part of the podcast. I think it's a it's a great thing, and a, and a big fan of ULI always. But I, I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory, and and this. About five years ago, uh, we went through a soul-searching exercise as an organization, and many such organizations do that, really to try and answer the question of, why do we get up in the morning? Like, why come to work? <laughs> and and it's not a facetious question. It actually was a really important one, and we spent a long time trying to figure that one out. And to the point that we actually refer to it as our why. Like, why do we do this? And we came up with with a two-part answer. One is, well, we're passionate about design. Like, this is what we do, and this is the craft that we love. But we also, we want to meaningfully improve the well-being of the communities that we're part of. And we thought, awesome, that's great. Next step, we realized we had no idea what we were talking about. (laughs) That really, we don't know what community well-being means. We don't know how how do we know that we're actually meaningfully improving the, the well-being, um, how do you measure this? How do you bring any evidence into this decision-making? So we decided that this was a much bigger question than just ourselves. So we teamed up with a number of different organizations, the Conference Board of Canada, but then we got uh, series, the Center for Research around Disabilities out of uh, Quebec and um, DIAC, uh, a number of what different- is, What the, is DIAC? The Design Industry Advisory Council, okay. who peer-reviewed our work. Uh, to really delve into this question. And we launched about a two-year research exercise to try and figure out what does community well-being mean and can we start to actually bring some wherewithal into that conversation. So that's the the wheel that you bumped into. Um, But the report got published just last month in in July. And uh, and we're calling it version one because we know it's going to continue to evolve. But what it really tries to do is elucidate a little bit what's the relationship between built form mm-hmm. and the health and the well-being of communities and the environment that we all share. And how can we inform not the work of chief medical officers, which it's great and they're doing a lot of different things, the work of architects, the work of urban planners, of interior designers, of landscape architects, of engineers, 
right? When you're staring at a set of drawings and you're sitting around with a community, how can you actually have the information to know is option A or option B or what am I doing and how can I understand this and then make decisions that are going to meaningfully have a positive impact on well-being? So was it a way to sort of measure how all these different Absolutely. aspects of... right? So okay. it is a little bit of a methodology. It's, it's a, a lot of um, case studies that inform the practice and then a set of indicators and a set of metrics to bring some evidence into that conversation. And they're intended to inform day one, right? When you have that black sheet of paper, when you're looking at a site, but then the whole design process, and frankly, even the life of a building, of a project, of a neighborhood, of an interior design, right? How does a condo board know that they're continuously being able to do this, right? How does a resident association know that this is moving in the right direction? And, and frankly, it's a little bit like where sustainability was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Sounded like a great idea. Nobody knew what they were talking about, mm -hmm. right? But since then, we've been able to build a lot of capabilities around the concept of sustainability. We can now measure the carbon footprint of just about everything. Right. The whole conversation around well-being is at that same stage, right? We have a lot of understanding of the relationship with the built form, but the maturity of the conversation is greatest around things like physical activity and physical health. Right. So what does this framework now allow you to do? Or how does it allow you to do a better job? Well, it's been fascinating, right? Because we've been running with it in our projects. And at the very least, what it's allowing is communities to have conversations that they may not have had in the past. Okay, so, so for example, example yeah. um, something that was an epiphany for me is, you know, I, I always knew that places for gathering and to be social was important. But I had never realized to what magnitude, right? So one of the indicators is spaces of socialization. We now know that if you have good spaces of socialization, you can actually push early onset dementia and Alzheimer's for about 10 years. This is huge, right? Or biophilia, right? If you have views to nature from any given environment, that you can increase the quality of life by several years, right? So now we have those, those levels of evidence. So what's been happening is now we have community groups talking about, okay, let's talk about spaces of socialization and how are we gonna introduce those things, right? Or we have uh, structural engineers, and this was awesome. The other day, you know, we had structural engineers who flipped the order between the elevator and the staircase to give the staircase more prominence because it was a way of increasing not just physical activity, but the social relationship of people as they were engaging in the building. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. we're starting to see communities, clients, um, the design team, you know, our, everybody who's being part of it, making more informed decisions around these topics. Do you find that, I, I mean, this is early on, but is there a fear that it might complicate the decision-making process or is simply enhance the decision-making process? Um, we were quite obsessive through this process to make the language very accessible, to make the metrics things that the design team can measure. You know, if it was something that it was gonna require to hire a whole bunch of sub-consultants even just to get an answer, we knew it was not gonna work. So it's, it's intended to be very straightforward in implementing it. But 
we're now running a whole bunch of pilot projects. We're uh, letting everybody download it and, and give us some feedback. And how, where do you download it from? From uh, the Conference Board of Canada website? Yes, that right? that's the, the direct link is right there. If, um, if anybody wants a link to that one, they can go to our website or, or just Google it. Um, it's, it's now become um, more and more ubiquitous. But, um, but we're collecting feedback. And we're hearing about things that where people are finding, oh, this is very easy to implement. And we're hoping to find things where, you know, maybe it's not as easy to implement. Hence the reason why you call it version one. Exactly. Right. So we know that for the next year, it's going to be a lot of uh, conversations and feedback. The year after that, it's going to be enhancing the research. And then we're probably going to be issuing version two and eventually version three. And it's really we're treating it as a, as a living uh, framework, as a living methodology. Well, getting back to your very first comment about, or question, I guess it was almost an existential question. What is it that I like to do or what is it I do? Why do I come to work? Um, You come to work, uh, from what I can tell, because you love urban design. You You love planning and urban design. So maybe you can just take me back. How did you get into urban design? I know you have a background in architecture, but how did you get into this discipline? Uh, absolutely. So I was uh, born and raised in Mexico and, uh, and did architecture in, in Mexico City. And, um, and I, was pra- I practiced for several years and I had a firm in, in Mexico City. But then I realized much the same kind of impetus that led us into this recent exercise that many of the questions that I was personally trying to deal with um, were really happening at the urban scale. It had to do with uh, affordable housing. It had to do with social equity. It had to do with um, climate and and uh, and sustainability. So I decided to go back to school and and do a master's in urban planning, and that's how I ended up in Canada. I never intended to still be here, but I'm still here. I see. So you applied to a planning program in Canada. Correct. Okay. So I came to York University and and did a master's in in urban planning. And that's when I discovered something which was really interesting. In um, the academic background in uh, a lot of the universities that come from a Mediterranean and Latin American setting, all urban planners come through architecture, right? They come through that design practice, which means they're strong in design, but probably not as strong on the sociology, on the geography, on the social sciences side of things. Conversely, the Anglo-Saxon approach is, you know, urban planning emerges out of a town planning tradition. So you have a lot of folks with sociology and geography as their their backgrounds and probably less with design. So I found myself in this very funny scenario, which is strong background on the design side of things and re-immersed in in kind of the social sciences side of things and really occupying this middle space, which is where urban design comes into play. So even my practice as an urban planner, I bring a lot of design into it. Mm -hmm. My practice as a designer, I'm bringing a lot of the urban planning and the social sciences side into it. Uh, So this is where urban design, which is really this, in my mind, an amazing practice, really straddles this environment. 
And whereas 10, 20 years ago, there was not as a, as a strong attention, increasingly the worlds of urban planning and the worlds of design are starting to come together and really try and, 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 and realize that the solutions that we're trying to solve um, or the problems that we're trying to solve do require both design and an understanding of the impact to the cities. Hmm. Now, I know that architects have professional designations. Planners have professional designations. Um, landscape architects have professional. What about urban designers? I mean, is it, is it considered a discipline? Is it a profession? Where does it fit? It's a passion. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yes, and, and, and self-described urban designers um, often straddle between the we should be a you know a, a, a discipline that polices itself and kind of creates acronyms and credentials behind people's names and and we certify people and then the next morning it's no absolutely not we thrive on the aspect of being able to really have rich conversations without needing to have this kind of disciplinary aspect of of the profession I don't know where this will land in 20, 30 years. Maybe, maybe it, it will uh, acquire some uh, designations and be more formal in its approach. What I can say is right now, because of occupying this space between a whole bunch of different disciplines, it actually is incredibly enriched by people coming from different disciplines and wanting to be part of an urban design conversation. So you get landscape architects, you get urban planners, you get architects, you get uh, historians, you get a lot of different people. And the conversation is much greater because of that. And that leads into what I wanted to explore a little bit, uh, and that's the notion of collaboration, uh, bringing everyone together. Um, and, and it's, it, it plays a really important role in achieving desired results for, for a variety of different objectives, including urban design. Um, one project comes to mind um, that is new and has received a lot of attention and requires a lot of collaboration is this, the King Street Pilot Project um, that uh, now many months into it has been hailed by many as a success for moving people much faster across King Street. Um, but it involved, uh, I got to think that it involved a lot of collaboration between many different city departments as well as many different stakeholders, not just to address transit, but to address the other interesting element of that King Street project, which is all these really interesting urban design elements, design elements, streetscape elements, furniture, artwork. Um, maybe first you can... Uh, give me your opinion about that as a project, but uh, maybe speak a little bit more broadly about um, using this example or, or other examples of collaboration, how how uh, important it is, a role it plays in, in, in uh, achieving success. Yeah, uh, I'll jump into the King Street pilot project in a, in a second, but I'll position it by saying that in my mind, cities are the expression of how we choose to relate to each other. And what I mean by that is we build cities in a way that we want to reflect how we want to build ourselves as a society. If we build gated communities, it's because we're scared of each other. Mm -hmm. If we build great public realm, it's because we believe that as a society, we can share spaces in, in that public realm. And the more cities that 
we, we continue to build, the more we start to realize that the cities in themselves are this incredible tool, this incredible machine that allows us to address all kinds of social aspects, um, affordability, social equity, all of these kind, kind, kinds of things. So increasingly, it has to be part of our political, part of our democratic exercise. And greenfields, I had an urban planner tell me once, like, oh, we do greenfields because it's way easier. Well, of course, right? Because ur- urbanizing and reurbanizing and replanning cities is always going to be complex. And why? Because you have a whole bunch of voices that need and should and must be part of that, that, that process. And that's not something to shy away from. So if King Street Pilot Project is debated and brought forward on the newspapers uh, and you know, left, right, and center, that's not a bad thing. That actually is a great thing. It means that us as a society are having really important debates that have to do how we want to relate to each other and how do we want to build this social project. The city is only a manifestation of that. So King Street Pilot Project is an example of, you know, us coming together and trying to figure out what are our priorities, right? How do we want to move around? Um, how do we want to start to build that part of cities? And how do we want to start to connect all, all around, right? And what makes businesses thrive? And what makes a street as a public realm thrive? And how do you balance the needs and priorities of people moving in different ways at different times of the day? Right, and that's awesome. And so, in my mind, that project was a huge success simply because it triggered really important conversations within our city and innovative thinking. Absolutely, right. It got a whole bunch of thinking outside of the box. Uh, so, for that reason alone, it was a really valuable project. Okay, so just in terms of that collaboration. Sometimes I actually contrast this to interior designers. Interior designers are focused on the interior of, of a private space, and, and it's really for a private owner, and that's who you're designing it for. But on the outside of the building or beyond the, the actual skin of a building, it's really about urban design, and it's really about satisfying the interests of the public as well as the owner. So how does an urban designer sort of balance the interests of both the developer, let's say, and the city, uh, the city realm, uh, the public. Uh, it, there's just a lot more stakeholders involved uh, that are interested in what's happening on the outside of a private space. Yeah, and, and now I'll make it interesting for your listeners by disputing, uh, you know, something that you've said. But you know, our, I, I would argue that there's a huge role to collaboration um, at all different scales, interior design, you know, exterior, like all of, all of these different pieces. And, and hey, we, we named ourselves Dialogue for a reason, right, right. as a company, because we, we, we truly believe that through collaboration, you're going to arrive at, at, a, at a better outcome. Um, but I've had, you know, some of the best success in my projects when I've had an interior designer come to the first meeting. Right and 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 provide insight. Um, I've also I've also witnessed um, you know interior designers doing amazing workshops in the context of their projects, um, you know, with all the different users of of a different space and really collaborating, you know, with the mechanical engineers and with all kinds of different people. So I think there's a huge role for collaboration and and in fact. 
the the value i think is twofold when you do a project that is really collaborative first is you actually end up with better designs you're more likely to do you know have outcomes that actually solve the issues and and capitalize on the opportunities that are in front of you if if you've kind of really brought um, a whole variety of perspectives into it the second one is you res- it results in implementable plans right stuff doesn't sit on a shelf if you've done it in a collaborative way you've built the support you've built the understanding and you've built a whole bunch of champions in the process and yes the projects that i do deal with it's public it's you know politicians it's stakeholders it's you know whole broad of constituencies but i look at other corners of the firm you know interior design and engineering and you know the stakeholders are are very different but yet the the drive to collaborate right the the belief that by getting different perspectives around the table you're going to get better outcomes is certainly certainly a big part of it Okay, so collaboration plays a huge role, huge role in in uh, achieving those outcomes. Um, are are there any examples that come to mind of uh, poor urban design, where urban design just did not, in a certain circumstance, in a, or a city block, or 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 wherever, uh, that you can point to uh, as maybe examples of poor urban design? Yeah, and and I, and I think there's many, and and they're very sobering to try and understand. You know, often the 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 very good reasons why some decisions may have been made in the past, but you know, just even typologically, right? The the the, the strip mall, right? The the very car oriented, nineteen seventies uh, strip mall, right? It's it's a horrible um, environment. It's not something that anybody, right? Or even you know, a lot of the malls that we're now trying to kind of repurpose. It's not environments where you would want to just stand and linger and all of these empty parking lots. Um, but yet there was a moment in time when people truly believed that the car was the solution to all our problems, right? Where designing for this technology was actually going to enable and free people to do all kinds of really interesting things. Um, it took many decades for us to figure out that that's not the case and the pendulum is definitely swinging in the opposite direction. But, you know, that was the information and the aspiration that they had at that time. The mistake today is to not learn from our mistakes and to continue to build things and design things with the same information, with the same premise, right? And and I, I don't blame stuff in the 70s i blame it if we're still doing it today well that's a good segue into my next question and that is um how do you achieve good urban design in the suburbs i'm thinking when i think strip malls i think it's sort of um, getting close to the suburbs or maybe it is in the suburbs um because when i think of good urban design I, i tend to think of elements from more of an urban context um you know, where the streets and block sizes and the building setbacks, road widths, street furniture, landscaping, and a, and a mix of uses are all properly scaled uh, for the benefit of the pedestrian, for active movement uh, and social engagement, as you talked about earlier. So, but can urban design, good urban design, can it work in the suburbs, in the suburban context, which is essentially designed and scaled around the convenience of the automobile, as you mentioned? Um, rather than that of the pedestrian. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, the suburbs get a lot of bad rap often. Um, and in fact, they're thriving communities. There's people live in, 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 in a number of different areas, right? So look at just the GTA. Um, amazing things coming out of Vaughan or Newmarket or Mississauga or Brampton. Uh, they're thriving communities. Uh, but many of them, yes, they were designed in a way of you know segregated land uses or big distances between things, and and all of a sudden you find environments where somebody's license gets taken away, they can no longer drive, and they can't get to buy a bag of milk, right? Or that kid, the prevailable kid, can no longer walk to school, right? So these things uh, start to take place. So how do you come back to these environments? And you know, urbanized downtowns are. Planning, replanning themselves constantly, um, all parts of the city, including the suburbs, will need to continuously being evolved, right? So when I've worked and come back to some of these uh, urban environments, you're asking the questions, right? How do I bring some of those principles of a complete community, being able to support people at the different stages of their lives during the different elements of their day in a more sustainable way, right? Um can they start to get to that bag of milk within walking distance? Can they get to school? Can they get to a job, right? Can they forget afford their house, afford their mobility, afford all their, the, the different aspects? So when it becomes a personal question, when it becomes about you know the quality of life uh, of folks, then you can start to have some really meaningful conversations. And you're not going to come and change everything all at once. The, the really interesting examples that are emerging out of many of our GTA kind of communities is, you know, here Ontario and Mississauga, which has become a f- real focus of both coupling transit and intensification and mixed use and really supporting a lot of the uh, the life of the communities that exist just off the back of here Ontario, right? But that hasn't happened yet. I mean, they haven't built the LRT. It's It's in the process. Um, what, what about, are there any examples that um, are, are, are there today where maybe recently completed that point to good urban design in, in a suburban context? Right. And, and, and some of them are, are emerging, right? And, right? and many of them are either in the books or in the process of, of being uh, applied. But I'll give you, an, you know, a couple of other examples. Uh, the Vaughan Metropolitan Center. Okay. Right. It's, um, if, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, this would have simply been a, another low-scale development, right? But now you have a transit station. Now you have some higher density around it. Now you have like walkable streets. And of course, there's 5% built of what will be the Vaughan Metropolitan Center. But it set a completely different tone. It set a completely different way of starting to think about it. And yeah, you know, could you improve it? For sure, eternally, right? But is it 100% different than than what we were building a generation ago? Absolutely, right? New market is pushing, trying to push the envelope uh, in terms of how they're thinking about things, how they're incorporating uh, the mid-rise densities and the likes, right? Brampton is looking at, you know, their urban center and how can they start to really bring transit into, into these conversations. It's a complex one, right? Um, so we're having conversations that weren't being held before. 
Okay, I want to I want to move a little bit to urban design and public safety. Public safety is something I think that's been top of mind for a lot of Torontonians this, this past summer. Um, we had uh, you know we had some really tragic events that took place, um, but the one that comes to mind is the uh, the van attack on North Young Street uh, between uh, Finch and, and Shepherd, and after that attack, I think several days later, maybe almost a day later. The city of Toronto quickly reacted and, and put up these these concrete uh, barriers or jersey barriers right in front of Union Station on the edge of the sort of pedestrian area, and I think it it took a lot of there was a lot of criticism for um, the sort of a knee jerk response to put up these jersey barriers, uh, criticism because uh, they're ugly and they took away from the the look and feel of what uh, planners and urban designers were trying to achieve. Um, at Union Station. So I just want to know whether we can do a better job of ensuring public safety in our public spaces without compromising good urban design. Can it be done cost-effectively? Absolutely. And and I would always much rather focus on the root causes of the problems than, than try and kind of patch the solutions afterwards. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So Union Station specifically, um, many years ago, I was working on the master plan for Union Station. And we were having this debate around safety in the station. And many folks wanted to turn Union Station into um, the equivalent of an airport. Mm-hmm. Single point of entrance, metal detectors, you know, kind of that that kind of, a, uh, of an approach. And um, we were in the middle of having that debate and i don't know if you remember but there was a somebody who grabbed a hostage with a gun right at the front door of union station right i do remember that and out came snipers nobody knew that toronto had a swat team but we did (laughs) thankfully (laughs) and um and they resolved the issue within five minutes right they shot the guy and horrible as it sounds right and of course we were trying to have this debate on safety and this thing happened Long story short, Union Station today has over 30 different places in which you can enter it. That was the moment when we actually opened out doors to the south side. We opened doors on the east and the west and every and a whole bunch of different different areas. There's a there's a often an approach to safety in the public realm which is defensive in nature, right? And the Jersey barriers are an example of that, but also putting armrests on benches so that homeless folks can't sleep on the bench, right? Or putting uh, little uh, bumps on ledges so that skateboarders can't can't use them, right? Um, you're trying to fend away people. What I keep on finding is the best thing for, you know, from safety from crime, not from terrorists, but from crime generally, is just having more people around. If you open up more doors, if you make it more attractive, if you get more people in and around, uh, that usually uh, goes way beyond. But then you have to tackle the root causes, right? Look at you know, your demographics, look at social issues, like bring some of those things into the conversation. And they're not easy, they're not straightforward, which is often why we don't do them. Because they're easy, it's easier to put up a Jersey barrier than it is to talk, talk about you know, some more chronic social issues. But that's that's where we need to go. But those, you know, what you're suggesting takes time, takes a lot of dialogue. Here we go, quoting your company name again. Um, but I think more for the immediate 
term, almost in response to, you know, to what happened on Young Street and to prevent that kind of thing from happening again, uh, I got to think that city officials and the public um, are starting to think about that. And do they feel safe being part of a large a group of, of uh, pedestrians in front of a, a large uh, uh, transit hub like Union Station? Do they feel safe? Do they think that this could happen again? Um, and uh, it, are the Jersey barriers the only solution in the immediate future? Cer- certainly, we, there needs to be more dialogue. And, but- and where do you stop? Right. Because, you know, once you've put Jersey barriers all around Union Station, are you going to start putting them all around every public square, sure. every park, every city street? Right. Like where where does where does that stop? Mm-hmm. It becomes a never ending, like just defending through um, through building more barriers is an is a never ending exercise. Right. And it still will not have dealt with some of the some of the bigger issues. You know, you do speak to, you know, point the finger at both the real and the perceived sense of, of safety, right? Is it's it's almost as important, you know, what what are the actual incidents that are taking place and you know how how real is is are some of these issues and and a lot of those things actually get um, multiplied in our public thought. So, you know, that my kid if I send my kid to buy the bag of milk that they'll get abducted you know the actual incidence of that happening is uh is you know so rare that um you know we don't need to be worrying about that but all of a sudden we're no longer letting our kids walk to school because we fear that these things are going to start to take place right so the actual uh issues of safety um you know get overblown in many incidences so the perception of safety is almost as important, right? So when we go out and when we talk with communities, we address the actual safety, but also the perception of safety. Because if people are not letting their kids walk to school, uh, that's a very real thing, right? And we need to figure out, you know, what are some of the root causes for that? And how do we actually enable a community to feel like they can let their kids go out and play and, 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 and you know, go to school and go buy milk and bread and, you know, all of these kinds of things. Otherwise, we're just going to kind of fend ourselves further and further and further away from each other. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's it's certainly a topic that needs a lot of unfolding and a lot of um, attention. And I, one, I think one I, particular one in terms of uh, safety is, um, is the vehicle-pedestrian uh, conflicts, right, which... You know, every time that in Toronto we have a cyclist that gets run over, that, that that's a very real thing. Right? Sure, we we do need to embrace a vision zero type of an approach. You know, address our street intersections, address the safety of uh, pedestrians, of cyclists, and you know those those conflicts. You know, there's a lot that urban design can do in in that. Uh, but it is about prioritizing, right? It's about us having that conversation as a society and where do we want to really prioritize? Well, cycling is certainly another very um, important topic and it had, unfortunately, the, um, you know, the, the recent deaths. Uh, that was another tragic thing that happened over the summer. So what are some of the ideas from an urban design perspective that can um, help make cycling infrastructure more accessible, safer, more appealing? Yeah. So bike paths, right? Mm-hmm. Bike lanes, you know, get get the more that we can get people um, using cycling, the more uh, th- that it's actually going to 
start to become part of the culture of it, right? So you get a tipping point when um, when it really starts to become uh, a positive. But you know, integrate them fully into the transportation mode, right? So the more bikes that we get out there, the more facilities and infrastructure and around it, the more people are going to start to use it, the more it becomes ubiquitous, right? I feel way safer um, when I'm biking and there's another 20 cyclists alongside me mm-hmm. than when I'm the only one on the road, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which often happens when there's those lesser density type type of an environment. So we can start to build the the actual infrastructure. Uh, we can start to incorporate it into kind of complete streets type scenarios. Uh, we can get the bike parking. We can get the bike sharing type facilities integrated into the urban realm, right? There's a lot of things that we can do. And but is it doing just more of the same, what we have right now where you have painted lines on the street? Um, or is it is it getting a little bit more um, aggressive or ambitious with the design where you may have separated or dedicated bicycle lanes. Is that what you're suggesting or is it just more of, of the same? I think every street is going to be different, mm. right? And and of course, you know, if I'm going with an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old, which is, you know, the premise sure. of the eight, 80s uh, cities um, organization, I'm going to feel safer if it's a segregated type of an environment, right? So some kind of, kind of a barrier. But some streets, that's not the solution that works, right? And the painted line works. Sometimes the shadow works, right? So I think we, we need to be able to have the mature conversation and analyze the different environments in, in their different ways. Well, I think cycling infrastructure, I'm assuming, will be one of many topics that will be raised um, at the upcoming symposium conference that um, ULI is, is hosting. And there will be many more uh, ULI is terrific in, in hosting all kinds of conferences. In fact, I think they're, they've got the ULI Americas is coming to Toronto in 2020. But I understand that you're one of the co-chairs for the upcoming symposium. Um, what's your role and, and what are some of the themes that you hope uh, will be discussed? Uh, so the you know one of the broader objectives of ULI is really to bring some of these best practices and to be a place where people can share you know, the best things that are taking place, right? And learn from each other. And that's very much the spirit of this conference. It's, you know, how can we tease out out of Toronto um, some of the most interesting things that are taking place and not from five years ago or from last year, just today and even tomorrow. And what are, do we see right around the corner? Um, so that people who come and some will be from Toronto and some will be from afar, um, really get exposed to some of the really interesting thinking. And we're doing some really interesting things, right? Like Toronto is doing some really interesting things and, and we want to point the finger at it and point at it you know, critically so that we can really tease out. Give me one example of an interesting thing that, you, that you're thinking of. Uh, you know, what's, what's working and what, what isn't. Um, so, you know, for example, what we're doing at, at the waterfront, like we've been spent the last decade transforming the waterfront, but now we've got, you know, sidewalk labs with a Google campus coming on stream. We just opened open the Bentway, right? We're trying to reconfigure the Dawn River and investing over a billion dollars in that, in, in that as a open space. It's one of the first times that a stormwater management uh, exercise has really become a trigger. We still have the gardener floating in between all of that, right? And and maybe a future uh, council of the city might 
still choose to take that one down, right? It's a very convoluted environment that we continue to reinvent and we're really trying to think it through. But there's some very innovative things that are coming on, onto place, right? Right. So, so that, that's, that's the one idea. Of, that that's one one of the tours. Um, another one of the tours is looking on uh, just the concept of heritage, right? But not just heritage and how do we do conservation, but what often is perceived as a as a conflict between very different interests. So can we do contemporary heritage? Can we leverage heritage towards a better future? Um, and Toronto has some great, interesting examples that are coming out of that. And many of these conversations are precisely an urban design conversation. They're about a city building. It's very much about how do we use cities and development and in cities as a way to address some bigger issues that we're embracing as a community and as a society. Well, <clears throat> your excitement for the upcoming conference basically reflects your passion for urban design and planning <laughs> and um, you know from the early years in Mexico to coming up here and um, practicing um, it's palpable to see that that uh, excitement and um, I think the symposium is going to be fantastic it sounds like it will be really interesting for everyone attending thanks so much for your time on this podcast and um, look forward to uh, to seeing you again. And thanks very much for the invitation, Jeremy.